Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Casharo, and I am once again joined by co-host Joe Wolfon. Welcome back, Wolf. Thanks, man. Yeah, back from my own personal all-star break. Feeling good, feeling refreshed, ready to hit the stretch run with renewed vigor. And uh, it seems like the NBA feels that way as well, because it's been a pretty wild first week back, I would say. Yeah, uh, some pretty crazy games, stories, developments that we can talk about. We can uh, almost play catch up on the couple weeks you were away and also on some stuff that's happened this week since even I last podcasted with Jeff Schultz. So let's just get right into it. You want to start with any observations at all that you or we may have had from Kevin Durant's son's debut, despite the fact they were playing one of the worst basketball teams of all time, the Lamelloless Hornets? Yeah, I can't really think of a worse scenario just in terms of like judging it and having stuff to talk about than him making his debut against that Hornets team without LaMelo playing on a minutes restriction. Like, I just don't think there's anything really to take away from that game, except for the fact, and this is just like something that we could have intuited and is not surprising at all, but it looks like a hand in glove fit, right? Like, I, I think that is kind of the book on KD is like you could put him on any team in the league and it would be a hand and glove fit, right? Like he doesn't take anything off the table. He doesn't really step on anybody's toes. Like you can use him in any number of ways. Like he can be the ball handler and pick and roll. He can be the screener and pick and roll. He can spot up. You can run him off of curls and pin downs. There just aren't really many or any holes in his offensive game and like he doesn't really force other players around him to adjust to him right he kind of just makes everybody's lives easier and he can play off of other stars or like if you want to stagger minutes and run him out there with bench groups and have him be the point forward he can do that too so you know I thought all of that was there and easy to see but again they were playing a not serious opponent that they didn't take particularly seriously they ran you know, an all bench group for the last like five, six minutes of that third quarter. And I, yeah, I don't think there was a ton to learn. We'll obviously learn more in the coming games. Mm -hmm. I think their next game is against Chicago, right? So still not the stiffest test in the world, but certainly a much stiffer one, a much more serious contest than the one that they just played. And, you know, we'll we'll start to figure out what their substitution patterns, I guess, are actually going to look like when the games start to have greater and greater stakes like for that one I don't know did did you have anything like any big picture meaningful takeaways apart from just like yeah <laughs> Katie's really good the Suns are going to yeah. be really good like I guess okay a couple things you could say and again we'll learn more about this in games that are more difficult or that matter more but like I guess you could say the couple of things that maybe were red flags in terms of you know what the team is going to look like you could say we're kind of present like with the the shot profile where they only got up 25 threes and you know i think like two or three of them were in garbage time too so it was like the three-point volume might be an issue and we know they're not gonna get to the rim a ton and actually it had like a decent number of points in the paint in that game i think but the majority of them came from floater range so yeah we know cp booker Durant all really like to operate in the mid range. So like, is that shot profile going to be viable? I guess still maybe a question that you could have. And then the depth where 
yeah, they looked awesome with their starters on the floor, but once they had to start dipping into the bench, it looked a little bit more tenuous. So, you know, maybe those problems go away when KD isn't on a minutes restriction, and then you just have at least two of him, Paul, and Booker out there at all times, and you don't worry about it so much. But I guess those are still the two things that I'm going to be keeping my eye on. Yeah, I was encouraged by the fact that Durant looked as bouncy and great as he did defensively in his first game back after a knee injury with multiple knee injuries now uh, on his resume. I, I, you know, obviously knew the defensive player he has become, but I wasn't sure he'd be that, like literally his first taste of action back on the court after all this time out, again, with a knee injury. And he, he has not, like, lost a step at all defensively. It's not like, oh, man, it's going to take him a couple of weeks to ramp up here. Like, no, he looked great. And I know, again, I know it was against the Lomelo's Hornets, but a lot of the stuff, like the instinctual stuff, it doesn't matter who the opponent is on the other side. Like, you either have it or you don't bounce the and all that, the lateral movement. He looked great defensively. I think that was a, a, a nice takeaway for me, regardless of the opponent. And then some of the staggering I found interesting when it came to the way Monty Williams was uh, running out his lineups. Again, I, I, probably not all of them are going to stick as the opposition gets stronger, but I did find it interesting. Like, even the first quarter, so, you know, the first dip into the bench, it ends up with, like, a Booker plus bench lineup, right? And, and KD and CP are sitting. But then the next kind of iteration after that, before he goes back to a starter-heavy lineup, he takes Booker out and then puts KD in, but doesn't put Chris Paul in yet. So they're still riding with like a KD plus bench lineup now mm-hmm. and still does pretty well because Kevin Durant is still Kevin Durant they're against the Hornets. But And then guys are getting easy looks off of him too. Like Lee's getting easy looks off him and the Suns are doing fine. And Chris Paul has sat for like eight minutes straight. And I think that's like a little, again, it's against the Hornets without LaMelo. It's a thing they probably are doing like in the finals if they're there, you know, but... I do think it's a little thing that does add up if like, you know, over the next couple months leading into the playoffs, if they can find ways, even if it is games against lesser opponents, where the amount of effort required out of Booker and more so Paul because of like the stage of his career is lessened, that's a small victory in its own right. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be seeing the campaign Damian Lee-ish Wainwright, Jock Landale quartet on the floor at the same time in games that really matter. But um, yeah, I guess, you know, the other thing that was interesting in terms of the rotation was Okoji getting the start. Like, is he going to be the fifth starter moving forward? Are they going to kind of rotate and just see what sticks or do it based on the opponent? Uh, I'll be interested to see that because I think he finished scoreless in the game. And maybe that just doesn't matter. Like maybe there is enough offense around him that, he can be basically an offensive zero and that's okay. And what he gives them defensively is the most important thing. That has always been Josh Okoji's path to significant playing time is just having a strong enough offensive infrastructure around him that what he's giving or what he's not giving, I guess, on offense just isn't as big of an issue because he is a wonderful defender. And that starting lineup with him in it is going to be able to really, really defend you know, whether that remains viable against higher and higher level competition is something that I'm still interested to see. And whether he remains that fifth starter will be uh, something I'm going to keep watching. I, I would imagine that they're kind of going to cycle it yeah. out, like with different guys. I mean, Tory Craig will probably get a look. Maybe TJ Warren will get a look. 
Heck, maybe Damian Lee will get a look. I guess they're pretty small in that alignment with with Paul, Lee, and Booker, but like that might be their best offensive group. Yeah. There was an interesting moment, I thought, with Akoji and KD in the second half, I thought, where KD was like above the break, and Akoji's kind of in the corner with the ball, and KD is actually telling him to feed the post. Because I think Aiton had a mismatch, but like KD's like pretty animated telling Okoji like send it in there, like send it in there. And Akoji's like not really sure what to do. And he ends up just passing to KD and it results in a turnover. It like sails over KD's head. Akoji's like, yo, trust me, I've played with Aiton for a while now. He's not gonna do anything with this mismatch. Just trust me on this. Yeah. I I did think it was interesting though, uh, and kind of just a cool moment too, because then like KD pulled him aside and seemed to be explaining to him what he wanted. And I don't know if you know KD was saying feed eight and as in like he's got the mismatch like he'll go score or it could have just been like get the ball into the post like we can like kind of run some other stuff around that as opposed to just like standing around and saying hey where's Kevin Durant like I gotta pass to him or where's Devin Booker and I think again it's like a really small moment in a very meaningless game but I think those little things add up and are the kind of things like when they are in crunch time of big games, when they're playing very meaningful games, whether that's, you know, down the stretch of the regular season, as they look to climb up the West standings or in the playoffs, those are the little things that having Kevin Durant on your team probably help you with even just instinctually, like the best ways to run your offense, regardless of whether you're actually passing Kevin Durant the ball or not, like the level of IQ he brings. There are obviously just so many ways that he helps this team. Yeah. You know, but that, that also might be possibly yeah, Andre Ayton's actually the good right decision or not is is you know a topic yeah. for another day. But I like I like the moment. I like that moment in general. Yeah, jokes aside though, that might be an indication also of why you know it might not be viable to have Josh Okoji on the floor <laughs> in high leverage moments. No, seriously, because yeah, yeah. because that's you know something that he's struggled with is like you know offensive decision making, knowing how to use the space that opposing teams are giving him like that that might become an issue like if he catches the ball and is sort of panicking or doesn't know what to do with it in you know crunch time of, a, of an important game then yeah that might be why he ultimately can't remain a significant part of the rotation as good as he is defensively so yeah. um yeah so we, we managed to wring some stuff out of that yeah. that game against the hornets but um i think we'll have a lot more to talk about in the, in the games coming up on Phoenix and Slate. Uh, I did actually want to talk. I mean, I thought the episode you did with Jeff Schultz was great. Just breaking down the whole Hawks situation. And since Appreciate then, it. they hired Quinn Snyder. So unfortunately, you didn't get to talk to him about that. But I think that is a really interesting hire. I mean, on the surface, a great hire. Like probably the best coach available that they could have brought in. And just apart from, you know, the raw kind of X's and O's and the pedigree that Snyder brings, I think it's among the more interesting stylistic fits and potentially, you know, stylistic clashes between a coach and a team or a coach and a star player that I could think of. And I am endlessly fascinated to see how it goes. And I don't know how much we're going to learn this season like it's already so deep into the year. I I don't know how much a new coach can just sort of come in and install and how much can really be overhauled at this late stage. I, I mean, think it's next- enough time for Quinn Snyder to learn that maybe he should have waited for another job. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like I, I get that the Hawks situation is kind of fraught. This season's been disappointing. I'm being dramatic. I'm being dramatic. 
And there are some interpersonal <laughs> dynamics that haven't been great there for the last couple of years. But hard to pass up the opportunity to coach a player as talented as yep. Trey Young and it's like the old adage, like I can fix him. You know, that's the the tantalizing lure of just being able to take somebody so gifted, but so flawed in certain ways and maybe being able to help them reach their full potential. I think it's it's interesting, but I feel like next year is when, like that'll be the big proving ground, I guess, yeah. to me. And the, the Quinn Snyder era did tip off with a home loss to the Porzingisless Wizards. Yeah, with just terrible crunch time execution. You know, like the, the Hawks were leading for basically that entire game and they just let go of the rope toward the end. And that's like a great example of, you know, I don't think this is the style of basketball that Quinn Snyder necessarily wants to coach. You know, it didn't look a whole lot different than the Hawks basketball that we watched for this entire season or really the last few years where it's a a whole lot of Trey Young on the ball and he's not doing very much of anything off the ball. And it's really devolving into, you know, the my turn, your turn thing with him and DeJounte Murray. And, you know, there are like, I guess, a couple of sets that you could point to where it's like, okay, like I, I, see what's going on here i actually thought like i kind of like sadiq bay for them so do i i, I, I like that even at the deadline i thought that was like a really good buy low piece on a you know decent high not high up like solid upside three and d young player that a team like atlanta probably isn't able to acquire any other way than like mm-hmm. a buy low trade just because of the way their own cap situation and asset stuff is i i just like him as a guy who makes quick decisions which is something yeah. they really need from their role players. And, you know, if they are going to inject more of the kind of Quinn Snyder, like advantage basketball type of stuff, then his ability to make quick decisions. And like, they're not always the objectively correct decisions, I guess, but like just that he is decisive, I feel like is important. And I'm curious to see how that builds and grows and how much compromise there is on either side, because we saw Quinn Snyder make compromises in terms of his offense, when Donovan Mitchell kind of became that dude, Snyder really did reorient his offense around just basically running like spread pick and roll and letting Mitchell cook with as much space as possible. Like it wasn't really a ton of the zippy off ball stuff with like a lot of decoy action and fluff and things like that. And like they were still able to basically put teams in the blender because, you know, between Mitchell's gravity as a as a scorer as a pull-up threat as a driver obviously Gobert's role gravity like they were still able to put defenses in rotation and once they did the ball get you know really did get whipping around if he can just bring that to this Hawks team where there's just a little bit more playing outside the play as Steve Jones Jr. likes to say right where you know it's not just about running that initial action and seeing what you get out of it it's like being ready to flow out of that initial action into improvisational stuff as a possession goes on. And that's really what I think this Hawks team has been so poor at this season. And it doesn't have to be all this super complex offensive stuff. It can be like simple actions to start that just flow into better rhythm. Right. And And is everyone but Trey Young engaging in these more complex uh, off-ball actions while Trey Young has the ball? Because I'm just not convinced Trey Young is going to want to take part in said complex actions. It doesn't, again, it's like, doesn't have to be Trey Young engaging in complex actions. It just has to be him doing a little bit more than completely nothing when he doesn't have it, you know? Yeah, no, I'm with you in that it's not a big ask of him. I'm just not sure he's going to do it. 
then it's going to be a huge problem. It's going to remain I, a huge I problem. Agree. Like we're on, you know, like Trey Young did not get along with Lloyd Pierce, right? And seemingly there was like a bit of a honeymoon period with Nate McMillan. And then by the end, him and McMillan clashed as well. To the so, point that Nate McMillan was reportedly considering resigning in the yeah. middle of this year after one said clash with Trey Young. So they go out and get this coach with a terrific track record, the highest pedigreed coach probably that they could have gone out and gotten. And one who brings his own philosophy to the table, coach some of the best offensive teams in the league with Utah. There's no reason that the Hawks can't be one of the best offensive teams in the league with the talent they have on hand and Trey Young running the show. So let's see, you know, let's see if you can adapt and just grow in a way that is going to be beneficial, you know, not just for him, but for the entire Hawks organization. Like, that's that's why this is so interesting to me. You know, I'm I'm yeah. really curious to see whether that change occurs and what it looks like. Yeah, and also because for as good as Quinn Snyder is, for him to have the impact on the team and on the organization that they obviously want him to have, Trey Young is gonna have to buy in at least a little bit, right? Like the not the part, but like a big part of going to get Quinn Snyder is how good of an offensive mind he is. Um, the way he thinks offense, the way he coaches it, and is a lot of that like quick decision-making advantage offense that he believes in. Like that's his philosophy. But if over time, because Trey Young's not willing to really be part of that, they have to just continue to like simplify and simplify the offense to the point where it is just a lot of the same kind of like Trey Young and not much else and like not a lot of movement. Like at that point, it's almost like, well, then what was the point of getting Quinn Snyder? And so I, I love the hire on its face. Like, like they got the best coach available on the market, a guy that if everyone buys in can really make this offense, the dynamic machine it can be, but it takes that buy-in from everyone. And to this point in his career, there isn't a track record of Trey Young buying into what, you know, the coach. And again, I, I, maybe the, the counter could be, Hey, he hasn't had like an offensive mind like this coaching him yet, right? Like he hasn't had. And so maybe like he'll, there'll be a respect there for Quinn Snyder and the philosophies he's bringing in Trey will buy in. But if he doesn't, I think it could get really messy because like they went and got the biggest name coach on the market to, to try to make this team better. And on the surface, it doesn't seem like his offensive philosophies and who Trey Young is as a player fit. And if there isn't that buy-in from Trey at like, at a certain point, it's like, well, then what are we doing here with Quinn Snyder and Trey Young together? And then at that point, if you get to that point where you're asking that question, it's like, well, do we fire another coach for this guy? Or do we maybe could see it as the problems the other way? Now, there's a lot yeah. of time before we get to that. And I don't even think this season, the rest of this season will have any determining factor in something like that. Like, I think the Hawks management is going to want at least one full season. Of Trey of Young, course. They, right. yeah. of course, yeah, obviously, I'm, that's what I'm saying. So, like, not that I want to say that what happens this season doesn't matter, but in terms of being able to evaluate whether Trey Young is going to buy in and whether Quinn Snyder will be able to meld his philosophies into this offense with Trey Young, part of it, we're really not going to even begin to know until next season. The other thing that is worth mentioning, though, is like, I, it's not just about the star ball handler at the center of it. Right. Like that there also needs to be a certain element of playmaking juice around that lead ball handler, you know, and 
That well, I, I don't the know. Thing if the Hawks Atlanta really Hawks have... gave up a bunch of picks for Dejounte Murray. Then, <laughs> yes, but Dejounte Murray to me, like it, it's going to be incumbent on him too, right? Like he's a very stationary kind of player. Yeah, like he kind of likes to initiate from a standstill and isn't really. When you see him off the ball, he's not super active, cutting, running into his catches and like going toward the basket with a lot of momentum. Like he he likes to do it from this stationary position as well. So that that's part of it. And when you think about those jazz teams, it was like, you, you think about Joe Ingles, right? As a secondary creator and how dynamic he was. And I'm kind of struggling to see who fills that role for this Hawks team. Like their wings, I guess you got Bogdan, right? Like yeah. he, he could be a big piece of this. You but know, even Bog, yo, Bogdan's uh, can be a free agent this summer. Right. I, I imagine they'll do what they can right. to retain him. Like, he he's pretty important to what they're trying to do, I think. But, like, DeAndre Hunter, Sadiq Bay, you know, even A.J. Griffin, who I really like, I just yeah. don't know if those guys have that kind of secondary playmaking juice. And, I mean, those Jazz teams also had a ton of shooting, yep. which has been an issue for this Hawks team, something they don't have enough of. All things that are going to pose challenges for Quinn Snyder and... uh We'll see how he's able to navigate them. I do wonder for a guy like Quinn Snyder, who famously is very competitive, animated, and sometimes demonstrative on the sidelines. Like he's very into, he's, you know, all coaches obviously are trying to win every game and they're very like, they, they live possession to possession. But Quinn Snyder, at least in terms of the way he wears those emotions on his sleeve, seems to be a jacked up version of even that. Like when it comes to like the, prototypical coach so I do wonder how a guy like that will be able to kind of like manage the expectations of this current season right like he said a lot of the right things at his introductory press conference where he talked about you know he knows it's like more of a long-haul thing but that he also wants to start building the habits this year and kind of like go I think he said he wants to be in the foxhole with them like down the stretch of this season hopefully in the playoffs to start like building the culture he wants before a full season next year but given the fact that I don't think as of right now, the roster is constructed ideally for the way he wants to play. And the fact that this season is going to be an uphill battle. I do wonder how he'll like keep his own expectations in check, right? Because it's weird. Like they're not really playing for much for the rest of this year. Like, yeah, they're trying to get in the playoffs, but it's not going to be the way Quinn Snyder wants it to be yet. And I'm sure he obviously understands that in the moment. But then once he's actually coaching, I'm sure it's also a different thing. And I do wonder like how many of those precious locks he'll be pulling out between now and the end of the season before maybe the front office can mold a team that looks more like the team he wants to coach going into next year. Yeah, I mean, we also only talked about the offensive end where like presumably offense has been an issue for the Hawks this year. But historically, it's at the defensive end where uh, they're going to be made or broken. And it's hard to say what Quinn Snyder is as a defensive coach because he's never coached a team without Rudy Gobert on it. Yeah. And I, I, I guess wonder what he can do to improve this defense. Clint Capella, you could say, is maybe a, you know, a reasonable facsimile of a, you know, a poor man's Gobert. I think he's actually low-key had a really good season. Like Capella has been awesome. Yep. Um, and so there is obviously defensive talent here, you know, like Capella, DeJounte, Hunter, Bay is, has not been a good defender in his career so far, but like he seemingly has the physical tools to be at least adequate. 
um, a Kongwu. Like there, there are some pieces that he can maybe mix and match and some ways that he can, he can figure out how to get this team defending at a high level, but that is going to be just as much a factor or more of a factor in how this thing works out than what happens at the offensive end. And I will repeat again for like the hundredth time that as much as it doesn't like seem like it when you're watching them, the Hawks, you know, two biggest minute lineups with Trey, DeJounte, DeAndre Hunter, John Collins, and either of Clint Capella or Anyaka Okongwu not only have good numbers overall, like in terms of their net rating and the way they perform against opponents, but defensively. Elite defensive numbers as well. So maybe maybe there is something there that just in terms of the way the lineups roll out and the way the roster gets built over the next year or so, Quinn Snyder can unlock and there is a two-way machine in here. Uh, Hawks fans certainly hope so. Real quick before we get to some uh, bigger stories around the league we want to bounce around to. When we talked about KD, we did mention the Lamello-less Hornets. He's now done for the season with another ankle injury. This one, a fracture. Uh, between the ankle issues this year, and I think it was a wrist injury his rookie year, he will have missed 75 games over three seasons by the time this year is done. Concern there or not really? No, I don't think so right now. Like, it feels like, I don't know, they've been kind of freak injuries, right? Like, I don't yeah. know if there's a, a pattern you can point to and be like, oh, he's injury prone. And, you know, in the same way that you can with Zion, which is a conversation for another day because I don't yeah. want to depress a depressing conversation. Right yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it's not that kind of pattern where you're like, oh, this is something that could continue to be an issue and maybe it's just never going to happen. Like, I'm not, I'm not there with LaMelo. I think it's a kind of a shame because he had started to play some really good basketball and yeah, the, Hornets the Hornets had started to look pretty frisky. They had won five but, in a row. But for their purposes, big picture, losing games the rest of the way, losing as many games as possible the rest of the way can only be a good thing. Like that's the the reality of the NBA as it currently exists. Like they have every incentive to lose and not to win. So provided that this isn't something that bleeds into next year, which I don't know, an ankle fracture, I guess it might. Like, I did. what's the, the timeline on that kind of recovery? I mean, not sure. I would, I would imagine that he's supposed to be ready for the start of the season, but I can't say that for certain. Because <laughs> that's seven and a half months from now, right? Like, you'd think that yeah. he'd, be, yeah. he'd be recovered and ready to, to start next season. So in that case, it's not really that bad a thing. Like, yeah. I, I don't know that there is a team that needs – lottery luck this year more than the Hornets do like them or the Pistons I guess both of those teams but the Pistons at least in their franchise history have had good things happen to them the Hornets pretty much never have and LaMelo is really like the best thing to happen to them in God knows how long so if they can pair him with another generational talent in this year's draft then they'll finally have something to to build with and get really excited about and uh Honestly, LaMelo just being out the rest of the way is is going to help them in yeah. that cause. So, you know, apart from that, I don't I don't really have a whole lot to say. The Hornets are I, I watched them a decent amount early in the season, but like since the new year, I'll say they're probably the team that I've watched the least. Yeah. The only thing but, you've really missed is Mark Williams has looked pretty good uh, in Mason Plumlee's wake. Yeah, and, yeah, and he's like I've gone back to watch a bit of a, a bit of them just to watch him pretty much because I know people have been talking about him and I've seen some of the stat lines that he's been putting up. So yeah, I do think he looks good, like just a super bouncy dude. And I guess whether he can kind of round out that prototypical screen and dive rim running, rim protecting center skill set will be the, 
the thing to watch moving forward. But uh, but yeah, he's looked good. Yeah, this team just needs to uh, hit fast forward. Honestly, there should be a way you can sim the way you do in a video game, like sim the rest of the Hornets season, toss them like three wins, just fast forward to the lottery, hope for lottery luck and another franchise changing talent and come back with LaMelo healthy next year and start it all over again. Uh, a much bigger injury, you know, no disrespect to LaMelo Ball, but a much bigger and more significant injury, even though it's not a uh, season-long one, is LeBron James's latest setback, which is a foot injury that will keep him out at least two weeks while the Lakers sit 11th place in the Western Conference, a game out of 10th. Now, they've managed to still kind of hold things together here. They just won against the SGA-less Thunder last night uh, without LeBron or AD, in large part because of the solid deadline work that this Rob Polinka-led front office actually got done. Now, I think a lot of us would argue it was too mo- most likely too little too late and that there's not enough runway here left, especially with the injury concerns with LeBron, the fact that AD doesn't seem like he's going to be playing back-to-backs for them to really do what they need to do. Um, so, I mean, your initial thoughts on, I mean, obviously, it's bad. <laughs> LeBron's going to miss time. But your initial thoughts on the Lakers' chances here, like if he only misses about two weeks, like six or seven games, and then comes back, given the new guys and the way they've played, like do you think – you know, they're, they're going to get it done, get in the plane and have a chance? Or are you are you just kind of like so over this, you know, if all these things break right, the Lakers will be okay? Uh, no, I wouldn't say I'm over it because I like their deadline and I like what their team looks like when they're whole. I think they have a rotation that just makes a lot of sense now. And if this turns out to just be, you know, a three-week absence, I don't think they're going to be so far out of it that they can't get back into the mix and you know, if they get healthy at the right time, I think they're going to be a pain in the ass to play. I know it's like always so many ifs with this team, but like it is the team that employs LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And like you look at the teams that they're kind of jockeying with for one of those last play in spots, and it's not super inspiring in those places either. And Zion's still out for the Pelicans, and Shea is out for the Thunder right now, and the Blazers are basically in free fall. Like, I guess there's a question of like whether the other guys are healthy because AD missed their last game with like a stress reaction, I think in his foot. Yeah. But I think I was also seeing that maybe, maybe he just won't play back to backs or something. I don't know. Okay. It, uh, yeah. He missed our last game. Uh, D'Angelo Russell's out with an ankle injury. So if like, if they're missing other guys, then it becomes really difficult. If everybody else is healthy, I think they've got a reasonable shot to kind of hover around 500 in this upcoming slate of games. Like they have this big homestand on the horizon where they're playing, you know, the Wolves, the Warriors without Steph. It's a bunch of games coming up against some of the teams that they are fighting with for those play-in spots, right? Like Minnesota, Golden State, then they go out on the road and play New Orleans. Like, I guess those games have a chance to have a big impact one way or another on how this all shakes out for them. But yeah, it'll depend, I guess, on how long LeBron LeBron is out. If it's a a short ish absence, I think they can ride it out. And I I hope they do. Like, I want to see them in the plan. Like I want to see if they can kind of bust through into the playoffs and, you know, provide a real challenge for somebody in the first round because 
because I, I do sort of like the team that they've put together. You know, like I like watching that Mavs game where unfortunately LeBron did get hurt and he finished the game. Kudos to him for for playing through what I imagine was some serious pain to finish that game and that amazing comeback. It's just like they don't really have bad players in their rotation anymore. And I, like Vanderbilt has looked really good in the starting lineup, which I didn't know if that was going to be the case. Like if they was going to be viable offensively with him playing with AD and LeBron, I think that's been fine so far. And then, you know, you get the benefit of what he brings defensively. Malik Beasley, he hasn't shot the lights out or anything like that, but you can really see how much just his shooting gravity opens up for them, right? Like their offense is so much more functional with him on the floor, even if he's not knocking down shots just because of the threat that he provides that nobody else on the team has provided this entire season. And like Austin Reeves, they moved him to the bench in a role where he had to be almost like a backup point guard for them. And he's been awesome off the bench. Like he's he looking great. Been he's, the just best. Re- he's really freaking good. Yeah, he might have been the best player on the court in that win over the Thunder, in that starless game between the Lakers and Thunder. So yeah, I, I, you know, they have like an eight or nine man rotation and they can switch, I guess, like who's even in that eight or nine man rotation. Like sometimes Rui has a big role. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes Bamba's in there. Sometimes he's not. It's now like they're choosing from like viable options rather than choosing like the best from a series of bad options. So I actually am like fairly optimistic about them at full strength, but you know, that full strength is like as a caveat that it's just a huge question mark and it's going to remain that way. Yeah. So I went from laughing at the Lakers to also kind of secretly rooting for them. Like you just said you are, because look, I want to see, we talk all the time about, you know, cherishing and and not taking for granted watching LeBron James, you know, it would be real like fun as hell at this stage of his career, given how good he still is when he's on the court. LeBron James in like a winner go home game and seeing what he like what he can still muster in that kind of back against the wall situation when I don't care what stage of the career his career he's at like no one wants to face LeBron James in a situation like that so them getting in alone for that would make my day but the fact that he would be in one of those games with an actual functional roster around him now makes it even more interesting. So I do want to see him there because I think it's one of the better results for the league, for the game, for my own personal entertainment. But not to be a downer here, we know, like, obviously we know LeBron's no longer the indestructible force he once was. Like, you know, the father time hasn't beaten him yet, but it's obviously catching up to him. And I guess the me being a downer would be saying, like you had mentioned, like, if this just ends up being like a, a short setback, right? The two or three weeks that they hope it is. And then he gets back. But like me being a downer would be like, yeah, but then how long until the next one? And I know mm-hmm. that sounds like really pessimistic, but look, since LeBron joined the Lakers in 2018 after, you know, basically the first friggin' decade and a half of his career, averaging only a few games missed every year, he's missed more than 27% of his team's games with various injuries, like all over his body. Because like, that's what happens as the miles start taking their toll and age starts taking its toll. And we know what AD's durability is like. And this also goes back to like, one of the reasons I didn't understand a lot of the optimism from some corners of like the Lakers universe where, you know, they talked about like free agency this summer or whatever, and being like, well, we can just hold off and keep LeBron and AD, you know, happy enough and and, and then just get another, like f- bring another free agent in and then come back next year. with a re-. But it's like, look how 
tenuous and thin the string is already trying to hold this thing together this year with LeBron and AD. And now you're going to project it a year forward and be like, okay, but we'll bring someone else in and then they'll be fine next year. It's like, no, like that's not how this works. It's not going to all of a sudden get better. It's not going to all of a sudden become more durable next year, like, or next month. And that's the part of it that like, as much as I want to see it and as much as I hope we see it, there's that part of me that's like, yeah, but okay, he comes back in two or three weeks and then it's like, well, then if they have 12 to 15 games left, but how many of those is he actually going to play? And same with AD. And that's why as excited as I can get about LeBron and AD in this roster being in that playing situation, maybe being a you know a pesky first round matchup for someone, the other half of me is like pouring cold water on it that it's not really going to happen. Or if it does, there's still such a ceiling here because you just can't count on LeBron and AD staying healthy anymore. And well, any more in LeBron's case and AD, you never could. Yeah. That's really where the age has caught up with them more than, I mean, like the explosiveness obviously isn't what it was. He's a 38 year old man, you know, not in his twenties anymore, but he has obviously been able to adapt his games in ways that can kind of make up for that. Whereas with the availability stuff and just like the, the nicks and bruises that he's picking up and the, you know, maybe a tweak costs him two or three weeks rather than one week, the way that it would have in the past, you know, or like, one quarter, like exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's where we're seeing it more than anything. Like I remember writing about this early last season. Yeah. I remember you. And, at, and at the time it, it was his fourth season with the Lakers. And at that time he'd already missed more games in that four year span than he had missed in like his 14 year career before he signed with the Lakers. Like that's, how much it's changed. So you're hundred percent right to be worried about that. And that's why when we do talk about the Lakers and like the heights that they could potentially reach, it sounds a bit fanciful because this hoped for full strength version of the team might just never exist for more uh, than like a week at a time. <laughs> yeah. And maybe that week just happens to be like the, the, the week where we see like the play in round and like the first round of the playoffs, you know, but you just sort of have to bank on a lot of things going right. All right, why don't we take the break, come back, talk Bucks, Blazers, maybe a couple other things. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. I've got two options for you here. We're going to talk about both of them. It's just a matter of how you want to start. You want to start with the hottest team in the league, a team I picked, and I think you, no, maybe you didn't pick, but I picked to win the title. I did as well. Oh, there you go. The team we both picked to win the title back in October. But I will say when you you asked me a few weeks back, because we were talking about them and the Nuggets in the same episode, and you asked if they met in the finals, who would I pick? And I I changed my pick at that time to Denver. So, All right. Well, you get half credit anyway. We did both pick them to win the title at the beginning of the year. They are the hottest team in basketball. They have won 16 in a row. They have the player that I think we would both agree, you know, on balance is the best player in the world right now, the Milwaukee Bucks. On the other hand, 
we could talk about perhaps the most depressing team in franchise in the league, right? Or one of them. I still think the Bulls are more depressing. But the Portland Trailblazers, who have certainly not won 16 games in a row, are certainly not anyone's pick to win the title if they make the playoffs at all, or even the play-in, which right now they are not in position to do. We're going to talk about both of them. It's just a matter of you want to start with a whimper and go out with a bang, or you want to come in like a lion and out like a lamb. <laughs> uh, all right, let's start with the Bucks. Because I feel like I have less to say about them, which is, I mean, it's unfortunate that sometimes when you're just a good team that goes about your business, like, it's not that interesting. But that's kind of how I feel about the Bucks right now. Like, they are sort no of longer just, cooked. They're no longer cooked, Joe Wolfon. I never said they were cooked. I said I was worried about their offense, which I still am. I would say that those concerns have been assuaged to a certain extent by the fact that Middleton is starting to look like Middleton again. He's not shooting the ball quite like Middleton, but I just think you're really seeing the value of his steady hand as like a pick and roll ball handler. And like, especially late in games, you know, that game against the Suns that they won without Giannis, where just his pick and roll playmaking down the stretch completely saved their offense. Like that's, that's why he's so important. That's why their offense completely died on the vine in the playoffs last year in the first part of this season without him. So that becomes less of a concern if he can get back up to the level that, you know, we've grown accustomed to seeing from him. Uh, again, that shooting is going to have to come around eventually, but if he's fine, then the Bucks will be fine. And we're just seeing, obviously, between their dominant defense and what they get from Giannis at both ends. And, you know, Holiday, I think, has really come around offensively. He had kind of a slow start to the season at that end of the floor. But they're rolling, man. And they, once again, if they ever lost that status, probably reestablished themselves as the favorites in the East, right? Yeah, and I don't disagree with you that, like, some of the offensive concerns are still there. Like, I don't think this is by any means a flawless offensive team. But I just think they have, between having probably the best player in the world and having just enough offensively uh, between him and, you know, Middleton back now, even if he's not at his best and Drew, even at this stage of his career and not really being an offensively, like an offense first guard has been pretty remarkable on a lot of nights offensively and like has summoned more from himself than I thought was capable from him at this stage of his career. They've got- Crowders look look good too. Crowders look good. Yeah, exactly. Since they picked him up. Um, They just have, I think, enough where in the grind of the playoffs, given how insanely good their defense is, I think those offensive concerns aren't going to come close to derailing them. And so, yeah, like I I never really came close to knocking them off the perch. Like there's been times of the season I was more concerned about them, obviously, than I, I am right now. But at no point have I really thought like, oh, they can't get it done anymore as presently constructed. Like they very much still can. They're showing it now. I think they'll show it again in the playoffs come the spring. Like, I don't know. Do you, other than Boston, oh, I guess Philly because of the size and stuff. And I know we're not, we're not going to get into this now. We have plenty of time to talk about it, but I don't know. Like there's just not as good as the East is. And there's not a team in there where I really think like, oh, this, this is going to be trouble for Milwaukee. I just, think they're the team that's trouble for everyone else that defense is too damn good man no it's it's not gonna be easy for them to go easy. if they have to go through both philly and boston like that's tough either one of those teams could give them trouble either one of those teams could beat them like they're not 
I, I still think they're the favorite, but they're not so far ahead of the pack that I'm like, they're going to cruise. Like, no, they're definitely not cruising. There are landmines, man. Like the half court offense has been an issue for a while. So there's nothing new, but We've mentioned this before, but like there are just times when they look a little bit slow and not that athletic, which is crazy to say about a team that has Giannis on it. But there are certain games like I remember watching them play the Knicks a couple of weeks back and like Emmanuel quickly was out there just sort of running circles around them. And it like really just hammered home that they're a little bit creaky, you know, a little bit slow and unathletic. And as much as Jay Crowder brings to the table, that's not something that he really helps them with necessarily. And I guess, you know, if you're thinking about them going up against Philly, it's not like Philly is a team, you know, apart from Tyrese Maxey, that is really going to destroy you with speed. And Boston is not necessarily that kind of team either. But I, I still think there, there are just certain things that I can look at and be like, yeah, I don't know. I have all the faith and confidence in the world in Giannis. But uh, when I'm thinking about the supporting cast, it's like, yeah, you know, they're, they're not uh, a particularly good shooting team. They're not a particularly good passing team. And it's still going to be incumbent on Middleton being the Middleton he was a couple of years ago for them to actually go all the way. And, you know, as much as I think he's looked better lately, it's not, that's not a sure thing by any means. No. I do that creakiness is why, if you remember when we did our, that season preview pod and we both picked the Bucks to win, between that creakiness and the contract status of guys like Middleton and Lopez, that's also why I said I thought they would win it this year. But I also kind of saw it as like the last stand for this iteration of the Bucks because they are creaky, they are getting up their age, they are their availability isn't as consistent outside of Giannis, and yeah, the contract status just further complicates things. So I. I'm with you in that they're creaky in that, uh, yeah, they're far from a flawless team that is going to run away from the rest of the East, but this win streak and a lot of other things throughout the year have made me feel even better about the fact that when I picked them to win the title, I said a big part of it was just that I trusted them more than a lot of the other you know, contenders in this season of parody. Or just distrusted them less. Sure. That, <laughs> that might be a better way. That might be a better way to put it, but it is the case. And this win streak has kind of reinforced that for me. Yeah, which is totally fair. And I, you know, even thinking about the creakiness that we were maybe worried about coming into the season, I feel like the biggest point of concern was probably Brooke Lopez. And he has like definitively put those concerns to rest this season, which has been, you know, maybe the best season of his career at 35 coming off of back surgery. So yeah, I, I still think, yeah, Boston could beat them. Philly could beat them, but uh, they they are looking like the favorite right now and playing some exceptional basketball. Speaking of Philly, their next game is a Saturday night national TV game against the Sixers. Then they have uh, the Wizards, the Magic, and the Nets. So if they can get by Philly, it seems like they can stretch the streak to 20 before they go out west for a few games. But we've also come to learn you know, over the years in so many of these streaks that a lot of times the slip-up happens in one of the games that you assumed was you know, an easy check. If you go back to even the Warriors losing that first game to the Bucks, you know, a pre, uh, pre-contender pre version of the Bucks. So I, it wouldn't even surprise me if they get it done against Philly and then actually slip up in one of those games against like the Nets, Magic, whoever. Um, but either way, those are the next four to try to get it to 20 and then they go out West. And I think they play the Warriors and the Suns as part of a short 
West trip. So it's it's going to get uh, difficult it's for them to really stretch this streak, but even getting to 16 is quite remarkable given how many times we've talked about this season of parity, how balanced it is for you know one of the contenders that are far from flawless to rip off 16 straight this season is super, super impressive. No doubt. All right. On the other end of the spectrum, the Portland Trailblazers. I know you have a lot to say. You have written about them as well. Is that feature up already on the score app or is it going up tomorrow or what's uh it'll be up by the time this gets posted so okay well you can uh you can listen to us speak depressingly about the blazers and then you can read joe wolfon's depressing feature about the blazers the good news is that damian lillard is friggin awesome and he's a treat to watch he is a joy to watch but at the same time as we were talking off air yesterday and I mentioned, if someone had told me, given the way that the Blazers had, you know, I thought done a good job somewhat retooling this roster around Dame this offseason on both ends. I thought they had raised their defensive ceiling a bit, the way they started the season. If someone had told me that Dame would average 32 points on 65% true shooting, that he would be enjoying the third most efficient 30-point season of all time after only two Steph Curry seasons, that he has played in about 80% of the Blazers' games this season. Again, after the moves they made, do I thought better build around him on both ends? I would say, oh man, they're they're probably a playoffs proper team and maybe pushing for more than that. Like they might have a chance to do some sort of damage this season. Instead, they're 29 and 33. They're in 12th place in the West. They're a game and a half out of 10th place. They're only three back of six, but they've got six teams to leapfrog. It's not as simple as it sounds. They're still winning Dame's minutes pretty handily. I think they're plus three per 100 possessions when he's on the court, but they're also a game under 500 in general when he plays. They're probably worse after the deadline than they were going into it. Jeremy Grant can be a free agent this summer. Talk to me, Wolf. On what uh, what are you seeing from this Blazers team? Why have they? I know, and I know. In fairness, you weren't high on them to begin with. Like we, you know, you clearly look right in our Kings Blazers debate from <laughs> earlier this year by a long shot. But I also think, and maybe I shouldn't put words in your mouth. I don't know, but I do think that again, if someone had told you the same things I was just reading. You know, when it comes to like the season Dame would have and the moves they made in the offseason, I feel like you would have envisioned them being better than this. Yeah, probably a little better. I mean, th- the reality is Dame is having one of the best offensive seasons ever. So it's not just like, you know, he's doing typical Dame things. I mean, he is doing typical Dame things, but he's doing all of them better than he's ever done them before. And you mentioned the stat about, you know, him having the third most efficient 30 plus point season of all time. He was one of only three players. You mentioned the two Steph seasons, also Adrian Dantley, who shout out to Adrian Dantley, because in doing that research, I went down a bit of an Adrian Dantley rabbit hole and what an underrated scorer he was. This guy was doing 30 plus points on over 60% true shooting five years in a row in the 80s. Anyway. Those two guys and Dame, the only guys who have ever averaged over 30 on over 65% true shooting. I wonder if in the 80s, if he, when he was doing that, if there were like guys who played in the 60s calling him like a free throw merchant and, and ripping him. <laughs> anyway, all right, continue. Almost certainly. But yeah, you, you just look at some of the number. I mean, he's shooting 59% from two-point range. 
if you look at his driving stats, which Dame's driving game has always been an underrated part of his game. Like everybody marvels at the pull up three point shooting and his range, but like really like his driving game has been just as much a driver of his offensive success. And it's never been nearly as good as it's been this season. Like in terms of like the uh, number of times per game that he's driving to the rim and the efficiency with which he's finishing those drives, his numbers are basically identical to Zion Williamson as a driver. You know, obviously he has the benefit of like, you know, the threat of that pull-up jumper, which he's gotten so good at weaponizing. Those little hesitation dribbles that just like freeze backpedaling big men and allow him to zoom past him to the rim and the extent to which like defenders can't give him any daylight because any sliver of space, you know, he can pull up from anywhere and knock down threes and like they have to press up and he can drive past them. So even though he isn't the most explosive guard in the world like he can still blow by guys really easily because they can't give him any kind of buffer he's just gotten so good so good at using his body and his length with those full extension finishes like during that 71 point game against houston like one of his buckets was this driving statue of liberty dunk over jabari smith and like he rarely does that but he just glides to the rim so effortlessly and it's just like any play type you look at it. I mean, in terms of pick and roll ball handling, it's only Steph among high volume pick and roll ball handlers that's been better than him this season. In terms of isolation scoring, it's only Kyrie that's been better than him this season. You want to look at off ball screens, like handoff actions, any guard centric play type. He's been absolutely elite. And I think, you know, his playmaking has been really sharp as well. And his ability to weaponize the defensive attention he gets has gotten better and better. So. He is operating at like a very high frequency offensively. And yet this Blazers team stinks. And it's, I just like, I look at what they've done over the last couple of years where there has been such a clear focus on trying to insulate him and like his various backcourt partners, you know, first CJ and now Simons with a defensive infrastructure. You know, they shelled out a couple of first round picks to bring in Covington. They traded another one to bring in Larry Nance and Derek Jones Jr. They brought in Josh Hart. You know, they brought in Jeremy Grant. They signed Gary Payton II. Like, now they've got Matisse Steibel. They're trying. Like, it's not for lack of trying that this defense remains so putrid. But nothing that they've done has really worked. And we can get into some of the reasons why. But part of my impetus for wanting to write about them was like, Okay, we saw, like at the height of the Lillard-McCollum era, uh, 2017-18 and then 2018-19, which was the year they made the conference finals. In 17-18, they were sixth in defense with those two guys starting together. The year after that, they fell back, but they were still 16th. And again, made the conference finals. And that was with Nurkic injured and Ennis Cantor starting at center. So I'm just like thinking like, okay, so, so they've made it work before. How did they make it work? And why can't they make it work now? And I guess I have a few kind of notions or theories, but I wonder what you think about sort of what's going wrong with their defense or maybe the team as a whole. Well, I think that the fact that you had to say the way they've tried to insulate the backcourt defensively between Dame and his backcourt partner, first CJ McCollum, now Anthony Simons, is the reason. Like, that is the problem there. We're not just talking about a team that's trying to build around this offense first 
defensive sieve at the point of attack in Dame, who's just like one of the greatest offensive players of his generation. We're talking about a team having to try to build around that guy who is always beside another defensive sieve in the backcourt. Like, I just think that is asking too much of a team, no matter what you put around them, when you've got too terrible. Not like, no, they're like passable defensively. They're just not good. No, terrible. I'm sorry. Terrible defenders at the point of attack in the backcourt. You are asking too much from the rest of your defense. And yes, did they somehow make it work for those two seasons? And in one of them get to the, the conference finals with goddamn Ennis Cantor starting? Yes. But I think it's a fool's errand trying to think about it in the sense of like, well, how can we replicate that? Like, how can we do it again with two terrible defenders in the backcourt as opposed to looking at it the other way, which is like, that was something that is almost impossible to replicate. And even in doing so, we hit a clear ceiling there that we probably can't hit again. And if we ever did, like that is the absolute peak with this kind of roster construction. And I think... I get it. Sometimes those are the cards you're dealt. Like they had McCollum, they traded and they end up with Simons, who I think, again, is a fantastic young offensive player, can be a really good scorer. And I understand why you retain that asset and pay him. And I don't even think his deal's that bad. It's not like I think, oh, they should have got rid of these guys. It's just at some point you have to find a way out of that. And whether that means that they should have found a way to turn McCollum into more defense first pieces, like I don't know, but there had to have been another path here because... I think it was a mistake to look at those two years and be like, how can we do that again with the same formula of having two terrible defenders in the backcourt as opposed to like, that's the best we can do with this recipe. How do we better surround Dame? Well, how do they then? I mean, is trading Simons the answer? Because probably, it probably is, yeah. And and trading him, you know, when he is still young and again, on a contract that I actually don't think is that bad and when they can maybe turn him into defense first period or just like pieces that better complement Dane. But then I I do also understand that then there probably will be questions about, well, then like offensively, how do they survive without him? Not even without him. How do they survive when teams play box and one against them, when teams sell out to take him out of the game? Because even with Simons on the roster right now, they have trouble surviving when defenses do that. So I do understand that there's a trade-off there that if you moved him and tried to make it a more defense first approach around Dame, there might be offensive questions. I understand it's not a... Yeah. Um, Trading Simons, I mean, depending on what they got back, obviously, that would leave them very light on secondary yeah. shot creation. Yeah. And maybe you can just say, okay, Dame is so good right now that he can maybe carry the offense at least to a respectable level on his own, and then we just go all in on defense around him. That's one avenue. It's worth exploring, I guess, because what they're doing now isn't working. And it sort of feels like they're spinning their wheels, you know, like if, if they can't even keep their heads above water with Dame having a season like this, then I I don't know, I don't know where they're supposed to go from here. Like, I think if they could find, we've talked about this a bunch, right? The Nurkic on-offs, how consistently, even in the seasons where like since that, that conference finals year, when they finished 16th, and like we said, sixth the year before that. Since then, they've gone 27th, 29th, 29th, and this year 27th again. Those have been their rankings in defensive efficiency. In all of those years, they've defended, this year their league average with Nurkic on the floor. The three years before that, 
they were like top 10 level with Nurkic on the floor. Like they, they can defend when he plays, but he misses huge chunks of time every year. Like, and they can't really rely on him. So I wonder if maybe just finding a more reliable option at center could go a long way because the, the solutions that they've tried to find in terms of getting that defensive insulation in the last few years have been on the wing. Like Dame and Nurkic are the only holdovers now from that conference finals team a few years ago. Uh, and that includes the, you know, the coaching staff in the front office. So they've shuffled the deck a bunch of different times trying to, trying to land on something, find a winning hand, I guess, to extend that metaphor. And it just, it hasn't amounted to anything. Like they're, they're going backwards. So yeah, I think that, you know, the, the idea, the notion of trading Simons has to be on the table. You know, I, I wonder if the notion of trading Shaden Sharp should be on the table. He obviously has a, a ton of potential, but he also, I'm not, not going to make any sweeping judgments about a, a 19-year-old rookie, but woof, he, he is not good defensively. And I wonder if, you know, they could cash that in. If they're thinking about, we got to maximize what's left of Dame's prime. He's 32 years old. Then can we afford to wait around for this guy to develop into something that can be super helpful? I don't think there are any like good or easy answers and they, they have the grant question to answer in the off season and he's going to command a, you know, a fat new deal. Uh, I guess they got to figure out like Thibel and Cam Reddish who they got at the deadline are going to be RFAs and they got to decide if they want to keep those guys around. I don't know. It's a weird and kind of sad team. And I, I mean, Lillard has to wear some of that, right? Like he is a big part of the problem defensively. Uh, it did very much. It was almost shocking watching that game. They played against the Warriors a couple nights ago where they were up by like 23 points in the first half and wound up losing by 20. The Warriors just hunted him like relentlessly that entire game. And that is very much not the Warriors typical MO. They're like almost philosophically opposed to mismatch hunting. And it didn't matter. Like that was all they did all game was just go at Lillard time and time again. And the dam just broke like because he can't really hold his own in man-to-man coverage. And when he's relied upon to be like the low man, which happens a lot because the Blazers run this scheme that brings their bigs out to the perimeter, either like hedging or playing at the level or outright switching. And he has to do things on the back line that he's not equipped to do it just puts too much of a strain on their defense. And then that's compounded obviously by, by playing next to defensively deficient guards like Simons and Sharp. So I, I guess there are probably some ways, some avenues that they can take to, to change the makeup, but whether the consequences of doing that kind of outweigh the benefits and whether they just ultimately wind up back in the same place, still spinning their wheels is like, that feels like very much a possibility as well. I just don't see very many obvious or easy answers. They're most likely to end up in the lottery this year. They they owe a lottery protected pick to the Bulls, so they should, you know, assuming they don't go on a run here and make the playoffs, they should keep their pick. They also have a lottery. They get, they'll get the Knicks pick. Exactly. They're going to get yeah. the Knicks. So they should end up with two first round picks, one of them in the lottery. And hey, lottery luck being what it was like is maybe some stroke of luck hits them and things turn around very quickly for them with you know one of those franchise changes at the top of the draft. But that is very unlikely given the odds. And so the way I see it is that 
I completely understand why teams like the Blazers, with a player and a franchise icon and a star as good as Damian Lillard, don't just give in to like the very easy, you know, pundits view of things where it's just like, well, you reach the end of your window of contention, you trade your star, you start again, you tank, whatever. Because I do understand that like when you're actually in that position as the franchise with that player, one, a lot comes with it, whether you're talking about tickets, merchandise, all that. But even in terms of basketball, this notion of like, well, you just trade them and you tank and you start again is such pea brain mentality because it's like the part of starting it you have to then find a player as good as him though at some point and like it's you could tank for a decade and not find a player as good as Dave so I understand well and also like you could find a player as good as him and just wind up a middle team right so so that that's my point is that like I'm not one like as much as I will you know a team like Chicago this year whatever there are times where I'm just like hey you have to read the TVs and, and go the other way I don't necessarily think the Blazers have to be in that zone. But what I will say is that if you're going to be one of those teams and a franchise that is like Portland and like this partnership they have where they, they want to stick together, they want to make it work together, and Dame wants to win there before he, you know, exhausts any other options, then I do think you have to realize that everything should be on the table but Dame. And if you're looking at it as like, no, we we absolutely want to maximize our window with Dame still here, then you can't try to straddle these two timelines where it's like, we want to maximize the window while Dame's still here, but we're also not going to trade a Shane and Sharp because we can't do that because he's the future and like we have to protect our post. Like you can't, trying to straddle those two timelines is how you're going to further cap a ceiling you have with Dame, which might already be there anyway because of his one way abilities. Yeah. So it's that's so only, hard though. It's so hard I, though because I, if you're, I know it's not easy, we're not like it's very easy for me to say this, you know, co-hosting a podcast as opposed yeah. to being being the executive that has to make the decision. I fully understand that, but from my vantage point and from my position, that's what I would say. It is totally cool if you want to continue to try to maximize your window with Dane because of how good he still is and the fact you have him under contract and and all of that. But if you're going to take that route, then you have to take that route and say, we are going all in on trying to maximize that window. Because if you're going to say, oh, we want to maximize the window, but we're not going to go all in to try to do it, and we need to protect our future, well, then maybe you got to think about the other side of it and be like, hey, do we trade Dame while we still can move this contract? I just I just think they're the classic case right now of not really being committed either way. And it's that's not the like they're, they're They're not ever going to trade him unless he asks them to. Fine, but then you gotta go the other way, man. Like, yeah, unless you I, just want to be a thirty-nine win team every year. No, I know. I, I, that's not maximizing his window either. All that's doing is keeping him here to play somewhat competitive ball, sell tickets, and play meaningful basketball in April, and never further than that. I, I fully agree. I just think it's really difficult thinking about it. Like, I, I guess try to look at yourself with clear eyes and ask yourself: Are we close enough? to being like competitive, to being like a, a legitimate, like quality playoff team. Are we close enough to that where trading, you know, potentially our best future building block, like the one thing that we can point to, or I guess the two things we can point to in terms of like Simons and Sharp together, like the basically the two best trade assets they have right now. Look at that and say, okay, we're willing to sacrifice that. Like we're willing to sacrifice what we 
presently have in terms of future equity to try and make this middling team and, and like, you know, how much better can we make it? Like that's, these are the questions they have to ask. And I don't know the answer. Like I'm saying like, yes, it should be on the table. They should consider it, but I'm, you know, that's not necessarily an endorsement that they should do it because it could turn out to be a freaking disaster. Yeah. And that's why yesterday off air, we had such a depressing conversation about them where, and I even said like, they're, as crazy as it sounds like the best thing for the Blazers might be if Dame comes to the conclusion himself. Okay. We've reached the end of the road here. I need to find greener pastures. Yeah. Let's, let's find the best trade for myself and for the franchise. And like it would hurt. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not saying it would fix everything. And I'm not saying they'd be able to rebuild better. They might not. But I think if we're talking about like long term, like that's, probably the best thing for them is like Dame coming to that conclusion on his own. Yeah. I mean, it would take a certain measure of pressure off. Like if you're working in that front office and that decision is functionally taken out of your hands, I mean, obviously then you're under pressure to like find the best possible deal for him. And that can be really difficult that if you're trading a superstar of that caliber, you're almost certain to lose the trade, at least in the present day. But it takes a certain measure of pressure off in the sense that like, okay, like our hands were tied and like then the path becomes clear. Whereas now it's like, I don't know, I would be losing sleep over trying to like pick a road, you know? Like it just seems... Good thing you're Joe Wolfon and not Joe Cronin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, that's that's yeah. about all I have on Portland. I just, yeah, I, I'm like caught between just being so in awe of Dame and, and what he's done this season and what, like how he just continues to add to his game and build out his offensive skill set year after year after year, like even in his 11th season in the league, just like still finding layers. But at the same time, it's like, okay, well, and like, what is that amounting to? You know, yeah. this team is on a, on a highway to Midville. Yeah. And there's no, yeah. no exit ramp in sight. The Midland trailblazers is what they should be called. Um, all right. I, I don't, uh, there was like a couple other things we were saying we might have talked about. One of them was like that crazy Kings Clippers game. Another one is like some of this jaw stuff. With the jaw stuff, I'm thinking maybe we just save it for another day when we have more time to yeah. you know give it the, the nuance. And, and the Knicks deserve. too. We should we should get we, we should get to the Knicks maybe on a future we episode. Will. Yeah. So maybe we can talk like Knicks and Jaw next week or something. But I think for now we we can just do a quick make or miss and wrap this baby up since we're at Sounds 80 good. minutes. You good? Yeah. Uh, all right. I'll I'll start by hitting you with mine. My make or miss for you this week. Jason Tatum, currently averaging more than 30 points per game. Playing the best two-way ball of his career. With uh, Robert Williams having missed a lot of time this year. Al Horford missing some time at some point. Marcus Smart missing time. I think Tatum has been the most consistent component of Boston's fourth-ranked defense and has played some incredible one-on-one defense as a wing defender as well. Make or miss, Wolfond. Jason Tatum is about to become the first player since Dwayne Wade 14 years ago and only the sixth player ever to make an all-defensive team in the same season he averaged 30-plus. Miss. Really good defender. He's not going to make all-defense. I don't think. I don't think he deserves to. I guess with all-defense, it's always a bit of a popularity contest, I guess. like There are defenders who get by on reputation and cachet. Uh, and again, I'm not saying it would be like the, the, the reputation of him being a really good defender is unearned. 
I just don't think that he has been at the level of some of the other forwards that are going to be in the mix. Like think about, think about the field that he's going to be competing with to get one of four all defense spots, right? Giannis, Draymond, Jaron Jackson, OG Ananobi, Jaden McDaniels. I'm sure there are some I'm forgetting, but that's five right there that I think would have a better case than him for all defense. So I'm going to, I think those guys would have a better case on pure merit. But again, in terms of likelihood, like I think for example, Tatum will get more all defensive votes than Jaden McDaniels. I'm not saying he deserves them. I'm saying that would be a crime. I think he'll get them crime or not. Well, I don't like it. (laughs) All right. Well, hit me with yours and hopefully I don't like it either. By the way, I think I think KD actually might have as strong or stronger all defensive case than Tatum has this season. Uh, but I don't Mikhail, think Mikael Bridges, like Jimmy Butler, Aaron Gordon, a lot of really good defensive forwards in the league. So it's Agreed. just such a crowded field, man. It's so hard to make all defense. There's only four forward spots, like I mentioned. Like I'm gonna call it a miss. Um, okay, mine for you. The LA Clippers cash haven't exactly come out of the break like a house of fire their deadline additions have looked eh. we can talk about russ also on a future episode i got some thoughts on the russ edition but eric gordon has looked awful bones highland is getting dnps already you know Plumley's looked fine i guess but uh this team has lost three in a row five of their last seven a couple of heartbreakers you mentioned the game against the kings 176 175 double overtime thriller where they blew like a 12 point lead in the last two and a half minutes of regulation uh the game against the nuggets where they actually clawed back from a big deficit but then got bludgeoned in overtime and like they cannot slay that boogeyman seemingly uh and then they lose at home to minnesota just another weird loss in a season full of weird losses so my make or miss for you cash goes like this in a Western Conference, and frankly, an NBA this season that is just full of underwhelming and middling teams and fraudulent teams, potentially, the Clippers are the biggest frauds of all. You know what? Let's call it a make. Love it. It feels good to go all in, to go fraud in, to end the first episode uh, with the both of us on the mic in weeks. This team of Tin Men is... <laughs> Is going nowhere fast. Look, I, it's you know we talked about in that Lakers segment earlier how there's all these ifs, and it's like, well, if they're on the court, and uh, LeBron's 38 and AD's always been injury prone. Like with Kawhi and PG, it shouldn't be that way because they're younger and seemingly healthy. It's more so about, I guess, like load management and all that. But regardless of why, it's the same story with them than it is with the Lakers, just on a, a different scale. Where it's like, yeah, all these ifs, sure, and like if this, and if they're both on the court, and this is their net rating when they both play. But like, they one don't play together enough, and even when they do, they have this weird offensive structure, and I don't really know what they're doing sometimes offensively. And I don't just mean Kawhi and PG; I mean as a team, as a whole. Even Ty Lue, who I think coming into the year I would have said, and I probably still would, he's like one of the better coaches in the league, and historically he's been a really good tactician, like. I'd have to say, you know, he has to wear some of it too and that I've been disappointed with him in terms of the way this team has run its offense. And yeah, the rust thing <laughs> doesn't help. But like, you just add it all up and I can't trust a team to get it done over two months from April to June. 
when so much of it would be based on like, well, when they're at their best, which is like what I see from them once every four games, then they can hit this, you know, stride that I think will they'll then be able to carry over for like 20 to 28 games for April. Like it just doesn't work like that. And at some point you have to accept what your eyes are telling you and what a team is and what the Clippers are, are a very inconsistent high ceiling team that doesn't seem to have either the want or the fortitude or something to put it together consistently enough. So yes, let's call them the biggest frauds in the West. And the reason I think that is because if I'm saying they're frauds, but they're also talent-wise and ceiling-wise, maybe the best team in the West, then you'd have to say, well, then they're the biggest frauds. Yeah. It's amazing. That's why I asked, because I think you can't call a, just an average team a fraud because they're not purporting to be anything other than an average team. But the Clippers came into this season as a lot of people's title pick. And I, I didn't pick them to make the title, but I did pick them to make the West Finals. I thought they were going to be really good. And it's been so underwhelming. And I just... I can't believe I'm going to say this. It's This is bad analysis because I can't back it up with anything. And it's like totally ineffable and unknowable and unprovable. But I, I just feel like they don't instill fear in anybody anymore if they ever did. Like I don't get the sense that teams like I, I think that players and teams obviously still have like a healthy amount of respect for Kawhi. And he's been on an absolute tear over the last, you know, six weeks or so but like i just think it's like even if the clippers run out to a big lead the team they're playing against just like kind of chips away and goes about their business and has confidence that they're going to be able to come back and that things are going to grind down and the clippers are going to kind of lose the plot because it happens so often and teams just kind of keep coming at them and i don't i don't know i just like don't think any team is really afraid of them at this point and they just they just kind of bumble around and like let go of the rope and let winnable games slip away. And they early in the season, like were terrible on offense, but they were defending well, at least. And now like their offense has come around and now they can't defend, you know, it's like, I just, that's why I put that to you. And I'm glad you answered the way you did. Yeah. Cause like how many times has Ty Lue, whether being mic'd up or talking post game, whatever, literally asked them to play harder. We're not know. talking have you, about. Have you have you kept count the way that you do like, with like who's the best player on the floor? I, mean, I should have. Maybe that should be my passion project next season. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we're not we're not talking about like a young team who's trying to figure it out and like take the leap to become like you know a playoff team or something like from the from the ashes. We're talking about an all in veteran contender, and Ty Lue has repeatedly had to ask them to play harder. Uh. All right. Yeah. That's it. That's all I got. So uh, take us out of here, man. All right, fan shout out this week goes to Austin Kendall, who reached out on Instagram to let us know that he is a loyal fan who hasn't missed an episode in at least two years. Gave a little anecdote about how he was on a road trip with his uh, girlfriend, who doesn't usually let him listen to sports podcasts when she's in the car, uh, but she ended up falling asleep on this road trip, so he threw on an episode of Pound the Rock, and here's where it gets funny. She... She wakes up at one point on this road trip and he's listening to Pound the Rock. And here's what his girlfriend, who doesn't listen to sports podcasts, had to say. These guys sound like they play Dungeons and Dragons and shit. <laughs> and immediately fell back asleep. Uh, Austin wants to say he personally enjoys the show. Unfortunately, can't say the same for his girlfriend who claims myself and Wolf One uh, sound like Dungeon and Dragon players as, a, as opposed to NBA analysts. 
Austin, uh, that's a great reach out and we're happy to get you a shout out. I, I'm disappointed that your girlfriend feels that way. I, mean, I, I don't, actually, like, I don't consider. That I've never played Dungeons and, Dra- Dungeons and Dragons in my life. Um, I'd be totally open to it, though. Yeah, why not? Uh, maybe if you're ever in Toronto, Austin, we can <laughs> we can talk about you teaching us how to play Dungeons and Dra- Dungeons and Dragons. But no, on a on a serious note, uh, despite the shade from your significant other, we do appreciate you being the dedicated listener that you are. And we hope you go at least another two years without missing an episode. And we sure as hell hope you don't miss this one and you stay until 90 minutes in so you can hear this fan shout out that you deserve. So that's our fan shout out for the week. We have one more banked, but we want to bank more. So the usual call out, hit us up, Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U or at Joseph Cacharo, email joe.wolfone at the score.com or joseph.cacharo at the score.com or like Austin did, find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know how long you've been listening from, where you listen from. Maybe tell us a funny story like Austin did. You don't have to though. Uh, And we'll make sure we get you a well-deserved shout out in the future because we couldn't do what we do if it weren't for you. Anyway, until one of those future shout outs on a future episode that hopefully doesn't go 90 minutes. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock. 